Aaron, it's it's interesting that we're talking about peace because as we go through this story uh, that we're focusing on today, there's there's not going to be too much peace at the beginning of it. Uh, but this is the moment that we've been waiting for. If you've been following through with the story of Esther, this is this is the end. This is we're going to finish up Esther this week, and I know that we've been going chapter by chapter, but the last uh, three chapters of Esther are kind of like a long denouement. We've already reached the climax. We already know how this story is going to end. And in fact, the way that this story is going to end was was really given to us last week uh, by by uh, Haman's uh, by uh, Haman's wife. So let's. Uh, so let's see if I can get my controller working. Oh, that's weird. Sorry, it's working up there, but it's not working here, so that's fine. Um, sort of. Okay, so last week, so uh, la last week we ended with this: that that Haman had his his entire plan had started to come apart at the seams, and his wife now said that. Uh, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. And I don't know about you guys, but having read this for a while, and some of you are just jumping into this book of Esther with us, and I really don't have time to catch you up. It's a too good, like, it's a, we would, sorry. Um, but Haman has been plotting the death of all the Jews, uh, and his wife last week was like, you should... You're gonna. Everything's gonna go great with you, and this, and then, and then now his wife is like, everything's going to come to ruin for you, and it's like, thank you, wife. That is very kind of you. You will surely come to ruin. And while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet that Esther had prepared. It's already starting to come apart at the seams for Haman, and. Uh, so the king, immediately the king went to Queen Esther's banquet, and when they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Okay, so this is the re repetition of the, the request that was given last time. And Haman already knows that this is going to go bad. So we're watching Haman squirm in this moment as, as the king who, who, who loves him so well, who is in charge. Everything in Haman's life has been dedicated to sucking up to this king. And now this king is going to hear from his queen that she wants the destruction of Esther. And queen answer, uh, 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 answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, Grant me my life, this is my petition, and spare my people, this is my request, for I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Lest we be confused that Xerxes is somehow changing here to become a nice guy, he's not. Like, this is just a weird statement to be like, oh, we wouldn't have bothered you if we were just going to go into slavery. You know, like that's kind of gross as well. But this continues. So, uh, so because, it, because of this threatened genocide, but so she, what she wants is a reversal of this, right? So King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. And Esther said, the, this, an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the queen. 
the king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. If you followed along, this is how we know that Haman is in a rage. Haman has never left his wine anywhere this entire story. Haman is upset. Like, if Haman left his wine somewhere, something is definitely going wrong. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Now we're already starting to see the reversal. Haman, who had been so evil, so powerful, so manipulative, is now reduced to to begging a teenage queen for his life. But just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banqueting hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining, and the king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? Somehow he got a little bit too vigorous in his begging. And this just doubles up again how badly things are going to go for him in, in this. And as soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. He's already dead. He's a walking dead man. Then Harbona. Harbona is my personal favorite in this story. Uh, Harbona just shows up periodically to like throw, fi- throw gasoline on whatever fire has been brewing the entire Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, a pole reaching the height of 50 cubits, seven stories, stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king, and the king said, impale him on it! So they impaled Haman on the pole that he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's fury subsided, which is a little bit nerve-wracking, too. That, like, that's what it takes to get you not mad anymore. Like, you don't need to go take a walk or, like, or, like eat some ice cream. Like, you need to go about impaling people on seven-story high sticks. So they impaled Haman on, the, the, uh, on what he had set up for Mordecai. And, and in all honesty, this is kind of the end of the story. This is, where, uh, the, this is where we go from here. Uh, it really just kind of reverts into, like, everything that you expect to happen happens from, from now on. They, uh, I'm just trying to get it. Sorry, my, my notes are... Uh, my notes are somewhere are like on this thing, and then it's not working properly. So I'm trying to. Uh, no, that's not working either. So, um, no, I know. Can you go back to the next one? Go oh, the previous. Yeah, there we go. The king's fury subsided, and. So basically what happens over the next little while is that the king's like, how do I reverse this? I've already made a law that all the Jews are going to be annihilated. And what he does is he makes a law. Then what Esther encourages him to do is let the Jews defend themselves. So the Jews defend themselves, and they end up destroying all of their enemies. And everything kind of gets turned on their head. It's very bloody over the next couple of chapters. There's a lot of murder, a lot of death. Uh, And then it finally ends up with Mordecai, the guy who got Haman so angry, uh, it finally ends up with uh, Mordecai taking uh, taking Haman's job, which is great. Like, not only the only thing that could possibly make this better, like, really in the in the like, this is a rap song. The only thing that could possibly make this better would be if like Mordecai also married Haman's wife, you know. But all of his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, Haman's position, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, 
because he had worked for the good of all his people and spoke up for the welfare of all of the Jews. Got very bloody over the last three chapters. In fact, Esther even asks for all of Haman's ten sons to be impaled. That happens. It goes very badly for Haman. Everything is, is flipped up. And, it, and it's, a, and it's a, a big mess. And I'm going to veer a little bit here. Because it's something I think that is, is very important. Because as I was telling this story, those of you that had been riding with us for the, for the seven weeks that it took to get here, when I started telling you about the destruction of Haman, there was a voice inside you that started to cheer. When Haman's going to get impaled on his own stick that he had set up for, for Mordecai, that we love, there's a voice in your head that said, oh, I, yes, you want to cheer, you want to stand up, you want to celebrate that happening. But I've been around Christians my entire life, and I've been leading or trying to lead Christians for about the last 17 years. And I know that simultaneously as that voice rose up inside you that said, yes, that guy got his, there was another voice inside you that made you feel bad for the first voice. Now, I don't know what that voice looks like in your head. It's generally an older person, white hair, well-dressed, very kind, Christian-looking person that has that desire for justice as that is that the feeling that the story was provoking was rising up inside you you saw a face it could be an older church man it could be an older church woman whatever that looks like who, who as soon as that joy rose up inside you at justice being done kind of that other voice kind of leaned back with crossed arms and said that's not very nice that's not that's not very nice. We shouldn't celebrate when someone is hurt. That's not very Christian, is it? And that voice is one of the most dangerous and damaging things that I've seen in my 40 years of church experience. One of the most dangerous things, and it happens all the time, is that Somehow, as Christians, we get the idea in our head that we're going to be more Christian than Christ. That we're going to be more holy than the Bible. That we're going to be nicer than what Jesus is. And every time we start to talk about, and, and, and I have this feeling rise in us, a justice being done, as soon as we start to talk about, about some things that, 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 that are very real and present in us, and we start to talk about the genuine emotions that we feel as human beings of anger and rage and frustration and, 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 and at injustice and, and, and love and joy and desire, there's this voice inside us that looks like a church person that, 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 that just sits there with their arms crossed and leans back and says, well, that's not very nice. Well, that's not very appropriate. And I want us to do an experiment, and I want you to ride with me, and if you're new and you haven't met me before, it's okay. You don't have to... We, but I want you to close your eyes for a minute. I want you to trust me for a minute. And whatever face that voice that said, that's not very nice, that's not very appropriate, whatever face that had for you, I want you to go up to that face and I want you to take them by the hand. 
and I want you to walk that voice out the steps of the church, and I want you to walk them out the back door of the church into the alley out behind the church, okay? Now, you're standing there with this, with the pursed face voice that is saying, that's not nice, that's not appropriate. And what I want you to do now that you're in your imagination with this voice in the back alley is I want you to beat that voice to death with a rock. And I am not joking. I am not joking for a minute. I want you to destroy that voice. Because that voice is keeping you from experiencing joy. That voice is keeping you from experiencing hope. That voice is keeping you from experiencing everything that God has to offer. That voice is not God. That voice is not the Holy Spirit. That voice is not Jesus. That voice is not Scripture. That voice is satanic, and it's keeping you from experiencing the fullness of what is available in God. Churches my entire life have been filled with this voice. Sometimes it inhabits a specific person. And, and, I'm, and I'm not suggesting that we take a real person out to the alley and that's not, it was metaphoric. But sometimes it inhabits an individual person who wants to police the behavior of everyone around them with a pursed voice and says, well, that's not appropriate to talk about here. Sometimes it it permeates the entire culture where we all feel afraid of a person that isn't here to the point where we can't acknowledge the fullness of human experience because we're all too afraid that we're not going to be nice enough for one person who's going to be looking down on us in shame. This voice limits the boundaries of what we can discuss as a church to what is nice and appropriate and comfortable and safe. And that voice is killing us as an individual church, as Christians, and as the body of Christ. It's killing us. And I've been a Christian and alive for 40 years, and we are not more Christian now than we were when I was born. And that voice has been in charge for 40 years, and it's time for it to go away. It's preventing us from surrendering every aspect of our lives to Jesus, and it's robbing us of the peace and grace that happens when we surrender all. Of course you like seeing Haman get his, because you're human. Of course you like seeing Haman get destroyed because you're human. You want to see that. You want to see justice done. God has put in you a longing for justice. And what he does simultaneously is he says, I know you want justice, but vengeance is mine. Sometimes we think that being a Christian means being nice. Being a Christian is not about being nice. Being a Christian is about being holy. And nice is the enemy of holy. Because nice doesn't acknowledge what is inside us and never lets the truth about who we are get out. Jesus did say, pray for those who persecute you, but sometimes praying for those who persecute you looks like Psalm 109. Where the writer of Psalm 109 says this about their enemy, appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he's he's tried, let him be found guilty. And may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. 
May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off. May their names be blotted from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sin always remain before the Lord that he may blot out their name from the earth. That's in the Bible. I didn't make that up. But isn't that kind of ridiculous? How much different would your life be if the next time someone cut you off in traffic, you said, may his children be wandering beggars? Right? Because as soon as you say it out loud, it starts to be silly. As soon as you say it out loud, you start to confront the fact that, like, I want that, but God, do your thing. And God says, vengeance is mine. Pray for those who persecute you, yes, but there's a process. And God is not so unaware of human experience that he expects us in the immediate aftermath of being sinned against to immediately jump to wanting good and wonderful things for our accusers. There are people in this congregation who have experienced the most vile forms of abuse. They live here sometimes, and that's okay. That is okay. You do not need to be ashamed of that. Your challenge, though, is to bring this to the Lord. God knows that's what's in you. But don't be afraid of it. It's okay to come to God and say, God, I want I want, ev- I want this thing burned to the ground. And sometimes God will burn it to the ground. But sometimes he'll say, vengeance is mine, and I have satisfaction for you that is beyond what you can understand. But bring that too. I get it. I get it. We need to stop trying to be more Christian than the Bible is. Because it's killing us. I had a conversation with Joe just this morning. He's going through the Song of Solomon. Um, not just for funsies, but uh, it's being sent to him by the Bible Society, which is great. Uh, but the history of the Song of Songs, which is a very explicit poem about the intimacy between a husband and wife, what we've done as Christians for centuries is we tried to sanitize it and say, like, oh, this is really about Christ and the church. This is desperately not about two human beings experiencing the pleasure of, uh, of marital love together. What has that done but diminish and, and exclude that portion of, of the reality of God's good gifts from us? We've said, no, oh, that's not nice. That's not appropriate. And where has it gotten us? Are we more holy? Are we more Christ-like? No, we're not. So it's time for us to come to terms with the fact that this is in us. We're not called to niceness. We're called to holiness. And we do not make ourselves holy through effort. We make ourselves holy for listening to what God, by listening to what God said. You have heard that it was said, love your, enemy, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That 
doesn't mean that you jump immediately to praying that all sorts of wonderful things happen to them. That's skipping all the processes, and that's making you ashamed of an anger that is inside you over what happened to you that, 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 that you can never get, get out and express. God is saying, no, bring that to me. Pray for those who persecute you, that they be destroyed, that justice be done, and then trust God. He causes the sun to rise in the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The path to perfection is not in denying what we're feeling. The path to perfection is saying, God, this is yours too, and I don't know what to do with it. And God says, yeah, yeah, I get that. We need to celebrate the story of Haman because we as humans love to see justice done. Haman trusted himself and his own cunning, and it led him to destruction. We need to trust the Lord at all parts of our lives, even when we're seeking out the destruction of our enemies, even when we've been sinned against. We need to trust the Lord, not our own ability to make ourselves feel better and manufacture some sort of polite reaction. We need to to, to give ourselves over to the Lord, that part of us that is angry and bitter and frustrated and, 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 and has been shoved down at every turn and wants to lash out at the world to get around us, we need to bring that to the Lord too because that's the only way it's ever going get, to get out of us. That's the only way that we're going to become holy. It's an issue of trust. And at the end of this, we come to this table. We come to this table where, where we need to ask ourselves, do we trust the Lord or not? Because Jesus didn't give of his body and his blood to make us nice. Jesus gave of his body and his blood to make us holy. And when we see a bloodied cross and a sacrificed person, it's very easy for us to sit back and say, that's not nice. It's not appropriate. Why can't we just talk about what makes me comfortable? We're not given that option. We come to Christ, a sacrificed God, who says, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat it. This is my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all of it. And it's all of us that God is looking for. It's all of our hearts, all of our pride, all of our frustration, all of our anger, all of our desire for revenge and place and say, God, take this out of me too because I don't know what to do with it. And when we take in the life of Jesus, we make less room for all of those other things. So I'm asking you at this moment as we prepare to come to this table, as we prepare to come to Jesus and his broken body and his sacrifice, what parts of you have you been keeping from the Lord because they're not nice and safe and appropriate? What parts of yourself have you been shoving over into a corner of who you are because what, 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 what is welcome at this table is only what is nice and safe and appropriate? 
And I would ask you in these moments to bring that thing out and bring that to the table as well. To come with your anger and, your, and the part of you that, is, that, 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 that has been sinned against and is frustrated. The part of you that, that, that finds yourself locked in patterns of behavior that you can't get out of. The part of you that has feelings that you don't understand and desires for things that are destroying the people around you, yourself and the people around you. I want you to bring all of that out to this table because this is where life is going to be found. I don't want to spend the next 40 years of my life working in a church that's nice. I can go do nice things somewhere else. I want to spend the next 40 years of my life working in a church where we truly surrender all and bring all of ourselves to this table because that's the only thing that's going to bring truth to the world outside this wall. And that's the only thing that's going to make us holy. That's the only thing that's going to truly transform us in the ways that we need to be transformed. Let's take some moments in silent prayer to prepare ourselves to truly surrender everything that we are to Jesus.